Hi, Merrick. It's wonderful to zoom in on you again. Um, how are you and, and where are you calling us from? Thank you very much, Spencer. I'm doing well. I'm currently calling from Prague in the heart of Europe, the Czech Republic. And it's been snowy this weekend, so it's been wonderful. Hopefully we'll get uh, like Christmas on snow as well. Wow, that's, that's so romantic. Um, <laughs> and, and since I've last talked to you, um, which was, I think, during the summer, I've, uh, you've now worked at a new company and you have a new position. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Last year was interesting for me because last year uh, was the first time in almost a decade that I was concentrating full time only on my studies as I was studying in Cambridge in the UK. Uh, and prior to that, ever since I was 16, I was both studying first at high school and then at university in Prague uh, and uh, while working sometimes, you know, part time, sometimes full time. Uh, so now I decided for some reason to, to return to that pattern and I both started uh, a PhD uh, study, so I'm now studying for my PhD, uh, and I started a startup where I work as a CTO uh, and co-founder. Um, so basically, I'm trying to figure out what I want to do for 100% in the next stage of my life. And so far, it's been extremely insightful uh, to be able to, uh, to to be able to experience both, and we'll see. We'll see where it goes. Um, so when I first met you and you started working with the project, um, it, it was when you only had that extensive experience uh, with, with ethics and, and a lot of technology consulting um, through classrooms and, and through other companies. Um, but what new things have you learned now that you have an acting role as chief technology officer and, and you hold decision-making responsibilities for development and applications of, of your company's product uh, or product and has your position changed your um, uh, philosophy on ethics or, or applied ethics at all? Absolutely. So the background of my experience is that, you know, while up till now, uh, and it didn't matter if I was working for the university uh, as an academic researcher or if I was working for uh, a corporation, I was, as you say, uh, you know, and maybe in a managerial role, but never too high up. Uh, so I had a clear cut job uh, in terms of tasks, but I never had an extreme amount of responsibility outside of, let's say, economic responsibility. So uh, the company could lose money, but I didn't have to, let's say, you know, decide people's futures, you know, fire them, hire them. So I was, uh, in, in a sense, very lucky not to have to deal with that. Now, as a CTO, I have to deal with that quite a lot. And there's, you know, advantages and disadvantages. Um, the advantage is that I can pretty much influence where the company is heading extremely strongly. It's uh, so so that's that's great. I can also decide what I want to do each day. I can also decide you know, how often we meet with the rest of the team, um, how we meet, you know, the the 
tempo and the style of work, what kind of software we use, etc. Uh, on the other hand, you know, it's very hard uh, to get everything done that we'd like. You know, I'm a little bit of a perfectionist, and I have high standards uh, also for myself. And you know, it can easily lead to you know ex exhaustion and overworking oneself. And um, you know, I've been through that. So I don't want to do it again. So I had to learn that. And um, as well, I, I feel much more responsibility uh, when it comes to uh, the, the work that we do and its effects. So I work in this uh, in the field of artificial intelligence, and the company that I work for, you know, it does uh, AI for unmanned systems, which can be used for rescue, but potentially also if they have defense applications. And of course, when you uh, deal with defense, you deal with the military, and uh, then it's easy to start to think like if the military has or shows some sort of intent to um, implement or acquire this technology, uh, it's just a few more steps away from uh, this system being weaponized. And that's certainly not what I would like to be part of, not because I think these systems are necessarily always evil, but because I think I'm not ready to tackle the moral dilemmas of, let's say, um, being in the decision process of, let's say, uh, you know, designing a weaponized systems that could uh, injure someone or attack someone or end someone's life in the worst case. So uh, I'm aware of the dilemmas that are present there, and they are extremely hard to tackle responsibly and of course uh, in in the startup world it's very very hard to do many things responsibly so i start i i very very much try to stay away from that for the time being um how do you go about trying to tackle those issues do you have any type of framework um and and do you think any part of your process is transferable to the financial sector in companies dealing in finances or fintech? Yeah, so I, I think it's um, it's very hard to get uh, to, to set up frameworks in a startup because you always lack resources and time to do everything properly. So I, I do rely on my intuition and I am, have a very conservative intuition in the sense of, you know, if I don't feel comfortable doing something, uh, I, I Feel like I'm generally better off not tackling it. It's not like if the reward is not extremely high, or especially if the risks are extreme. And when it comes to human lives, I, I think we we agree that the risks are extreme. So I uh, so my rule of thumb, you could say, is uh, you know don't get involved in something you don't understand, uh, or you know you don't have enough time to think about it and discuss with the, the relevant experts and uh, and stakeholders that will be part of the decision-making process later on. Um, so I think when it comes to the financial sector, you have a lot of uh, established banks that would tackle this. And I think they would have, or I hope they have more resources to also assign specific uh, people to work on these ethical dilemmas when it comes to, for example, you know, setting up, um, setting up the different 
uh, ways of allocating credits and you know mortgage uh, agreements uh, and possibilities. Of course, that also affects uh, human lives quite significantly. Um, so, so I think it's always best to try and and tackle the ethics and talk about it to make a clear and transparent decision. And if you don't have the resources to to do that, then just it's probably a not it's probably not a problem you should be tackling because then it's a very slippery slope uh, of morals that you can slide down on. So, so the process you mentioned. Um, it's, it, it relies on uh, skepticism, I guess. If you don't know about it, don't involve yourself. Is, is there a tendency or is there an inclination to not be skeptical? Because if you don't, if you don't involve yourself or apply your technology or your product in a certain way, then somebody else will do it and then they'll get the benefits from it. Or they easy to abstain from, from that position. That is an important question. Uh, and it is true that there's enormous pressure just by you know, considering the way the market-based system is set up. There is enormous pressure to go forward, to be the most innovative, uh, to be the fastest to the market, et cetera. And you know, Mark Zuckerberg, when uh, you know, he was growing Facebook, his motto for the company was uh, work fast or move fast and break things. That is the exact opposite of the stance that I have. And of course, many, many startup founders um, might be more egoistical. They might um, feel that they're, uh, they know it all already and uh, they think they have the million dollar idea. They want to move forward at all costs and with uh, very little ethical consideration. Um, and you know that that I think that can be very problematic. Luckily, most startups fail. So mo even most uh, of these uh, startups that do not consider the ethical circumstances uh, do not make it in the end to to make a profitable product. And you know, if you look at Facebook, which generally is considered one of the most successful companies in recent history, you know, it's a multi-billion-dollar. Uh, company with uh, you know a multi-billion dollar founder now, um, it's it's now facing you know extreme scrutiny and extreme controversy when it comes to its privacy policy, uh, uh, you know privacy privacy policies and how it's uh, handling its users' data, and uh, you know so far it's still worked out for it, but how long will it be you know feasible to uh, to continue, it's it's very hard to tell. I think um, if the company, uh, since in my opinion, Facebook has more than enough resources uh, to tackle this issue, you know, it has again billions of dollars in its offshore accounts, etc. If they dedicated a reasonable amounts to uh, you know thinking how they affect their users and how they affect the society in terms of you know. Uh, being prone for, you know, cyber stalking, cyber predators, uh, being prone to, you know, bullying, being prone to, um, you know, all kinds of, uh, you know, self-esteem problems. Uh, I think they would be in a much better position now, not only in terms of, you know, helping their users, but also in terms of business sense. Because in my opinion, 
this these controversies that they're facing currently are definitely not helping people. Uh, so now that you have experience with uh, decision making at the head of the company, what are some of the biggest differences of doing ethics, doing applied ethics, and doing ethics from a classroom, um, and, and also analyzing the uh, effects or results of technology use cases? Yeah, I mean, the obvious difference is the stakes, right? So it's very easy to simulate, let's say, negotiations in the classroom, uh, how to distribute, uh, you know, a cookie between your classmates. But in real, the real world is much more complicated and messy, not only because you don't want to share one cookie that would be unhygienic in these times, but also because, uh, you know, some people might want more of the cookie. Uh, it's usually not a cookie. Um, some people would like to trade the cookie with for different things. And of course, when it's your own life on the, on the line, your own livelihood, people work, people think about it very differently. They, uh, uh, they act more aggressively and they can act irrationally in many cases. So uh, the same kind of goes with applied ethics, you know, in the classroom, um, just like in life, you know, everyone would like to say they're the good guy. Uh, but as we know, having lived life for several years, uh, we know that's, you know, in practice not happening. And many people do many very nasty things and they uh, then rationalize it, say they do it for the greater good, whatever that might be for them. Um, but uh, the morals are much uh, more likely to be diffused in, in an argument uh, that happens in the real world. It's, it's much less clear cut. Um, the, the only remedy to that is, in my opinion, you know, actively trying to include the discussion about ethics in every major decision you make in business or, you know, in research as well, uh, to try and, you know, make a solid case for each decision that you're trying to make and, and why you made it. Um, if, of course, it slows down your business a little bit, but it makes you much less prone to catastrophic mistakes, which I think is a very, you know, it, 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 in my opinion, it's a trade-off that is very much worth it. And you've developed your own uh, ethical dilemma templates for the climate change team, and, and you've collaborated with many people on your team. Um, what are some of the most, in your opinion, what do you think are some of the most important dilemmas that exist in the intersection of climate, environment, uh, technology, and finance industry? That is a very interesting question. I think um, some of the most important and interesting dilemmas we're tackling, um, I find are closely connected to globalization because we live in a globalized world in terms of the economy, but the worlds that we live in culturally and you know, in all the other ways is not as globalized. So you still have enormous wealth disparities, even within countries, but even larger, you know, between regions. 
um, even though these regions are trading more or less freely. So that's been very interesting. Of course, technology dissipation is unequal as well. And so, for example, this makes measuring climate impact and attributing uh, the, uh, let's say, emissions uh, for uh, that, the consumption extremely tough. Uh, the reason for this being, uh, you know, you have most of the consumption, let's say, for the sake of simplicity, concentrated in the West, you know, North America, Western Europe. Uh, but of course, it doesn't happen out of nothing. You have a lot of the resources that go into these the, this consumption uh, being being imported from third world countries, being be it the Middle East, uh, from East Asia, uh, you name it. And then the technology dissipation is unequal as well. So you know if you have a computer or let's say a server that is running uh, in California for for Google to keep its uh, its lights on and of course to to provide everyone with Gmail and uh, Google Drive and Google Photos and all the good and YouTube of course and all the good stuff that we like uh, and it's been you know assembled in China uh, and the materials that went into it uh, were mined in Bangladesh and in Africa and so and of course all this mining consumed energy that was uh, produced. Uh, and the local power plants are mostly run on, you know, brown coal, which is extremely inefficient and extremely polluting. You know, how do you attribute those, uh, you know, emissions? Um, do you attribute it to California in the U.S.? Do you attribute it to Google? Do you attribute it to the uh, to each of the countries, depending on where this action um, happened? And it all becomes incredibly complex. And I think it also becomes very hard because everyone has a moral compass that is differently tuned. So uh, everyone has their own idea what would be a fair allocation of the resulting, um, resulting emissions, right? And in the end, for Google, the easiest thing to say is like, oh, we consume electricity in the United States and we have our servers running in the United States. So we only take the pollution made, uh, you know, produced by the electricity that we buy here. Um, and we can offset that by buying, you know, emissions, uh, emissions uh, allowances in the EU, which is, you know, the largest market for emissions allowances in the world. Um, so we we can say that that those emissions cannot be produced uh, anymore. So we take those out of the market and we're carbon neutral, uh, which is all good and lovely. But at the end of the day, the emissions are still being created both by the energy production and by the resource gathering. And in the end, the uh, emissions in the EU are just more expensive. It doesn't mean that they're not happening. So it's. Um, it's it's all very hard to assess and uh, there's a lot of greenwashing going on so i think for us as ethical researchers our part of our goal at least is to uh highlight these issues and uh shine the lights on these uh corporations that you know even though they try 
to do good in the end it oftentimes seems that they're only trying to look good so we we try to uh show them that you know we're not so dumb and we can see what they're doing and they need to try harder yeah exactly um yeah a, a lot of uh the top tech companies they'll they'll slap carbon neutral onto their homepage, but really they're committing uh, an imperialistic version of the tragedy of the commons where they're going to other countries and not only are um, they, or not only are natural resources that are, are finite and unregulated being used and having consequences on the rest of the world, but they're being used by a foreign entity only for the benefits of a foreign entity. Um, so there's, there's two uh, major wrongs or more wrongs happening there. Um, and, and do you think the solution to that, um, lies in international policy or, or do you think, uh, or just policy in general, or do you think a better solution would lie in, uh, kind of, as you just said, drawing attention to these companies that their, their actions don't really match their, their words or their purpose, um, and forcing them to change through publicity, or what do you what do you think is would be the most effective route for these types of big, complicated uh, international issues? Yeah, I think it's very. First of all, I, I would like to acknowledge that it's very easy to talk about these issues, and it's very hard to actually do something about it. Uh, of course, um, you know, I would almost like to uh, quote the first Czechoslovak president that you know everyone should. Uh, battle uh, just as big as uh, an evil that they uh, can afford to. So it, of course, comes down to uh, how, you know, what your position is in life. And, you know, as I'm a researcher, um, I, I would like to contribute with my research to what is actually being done and raising some of these questions. Uh, but uh, the the actual solution has to be uh, a combined force of everything you mentioned, right? So it's also it, part of it is researchers calling out corporations and countries, you know, this is not being done ideally, you have to try harder. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you also need national solutions. So, you know, you, in the US, there's not enough recycling, for example, uh, you know, there's not enough public transport, all of these things can be a really efficient ways of making the country work better for its citizens and also for the planet. Um, uh, and, and those are on a, to be solved on a national or on a state level. Mm -hmm. And of course, in general, uh, and those are almost, I would say, the easy solutions, because in general, you also need some international uh, agreements in order to determine you know, who gets to pollute how much and for how long. Because, yeah, let's say we agree that, you know, the developed countries already had their shot because of technology and because of historical reasons uh, why they polluted. So the developing countries say, well, coal is still the cheapest way to create electricity for us. We need to pollute. And of course, that's a little bit of a straw man. Um, you could easily question the developing countries' arguments uh, about that as well, because the state of technology has progressed. Um, and, uh, so, but, but in, in the end, we need to agree, you know, what, what is fair and what is reasonable to, to do. And that is, uh, you know, much, much easier said than done. 
Um, and uh, as evidenced by, you know, we, we've seen the in Scotland with COP26, we've already had uh, 26 meetings by the UN regarding the climate, and we've only taken baby steps. So it just shows how complicated an issue that is. After COP26 ended, it, it was it, it was very hopeful and inspiring, but um, also frustrating to see how much that's that has that's an international meeting that has more momentum than almost any other one I can think of, and even that is uh, moving very slow. Uh, very small steps are being made in that. Um, yeah. And, and for the uh, questions concerning the responsible digital leadership project. Um, Oh, what has been your experience uh, working in such a diverse environment in terms of disciplines, uh, cultures, and, and language? And, and what was your initial reaction to working with um, the climate change team? What worked and what didn't? Um, yeah. It's been a challenge as well. Uh, you know, as you said, there's a lot of cultural science, uh, challenges. There's also a lot of just technical challenges, just getting people to meet at one specific time when you have so many time zones involved. But in general, I think it's worth the trade-off of getting so many different perspectives and life experiences uh, to sh share uh, and you know, to shed lights on a very complex problem that I've uh, highlighted in my previous answers. So in order to try and capture uh, the true state of the problem and not just let's say the viewpoint from the Czech Republic or from the US or whatever, I think we need this scrutiny from different parts of the world that can provide kind of reality checks, you know, of what might be true and what one part of the world might not be true in another. So hopefully we can produce something truly uh, truly valuable and truly unique. What do you think is the importance of having global discussions and agreements of data ethics and, and use of artificial intelligence? And what do you think are the biggest barriers to these discussions happening in the future? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's not hard having these discussions, but it's a simulation just like uh, of the complicated discussions that need to be had, like we mentioned, you know, the COP26, uh, you know, the reason why those discussions are having so little impact is because there's so many parties that want a different thing. And oftentimes they might overlap, but oftentimes they might go against each other. Uh, so, so it's very hard to agree on, on even the smallest things. And uh, that's also one of the challenges of this project, but essentially it should, it should lead to a better outcome that is the best compromise for all, which means that essentially nobody will really be super happy about the outcome. Everyone will be ever so slightly angry, but uh, it will provide the least amounts of uh, disappointments to all the parties involved, hopefully. And for you, what is, uh, what is your ideal ex or what is your ideal outcome um, looking for in the future for um, uh, topics such as open banking and, and uh, the finance industry in general? And, and what do you think is a realistic outcome of, of what, the, I don't know, the data economy will look like? Yeah, I think 
idealistically, uh, I would hope uh, for a true democratization and decentralization of banking and other digital services. Uh, we've talked about globalization, and you know it's it's quite obvious that um, you know it's it's much easier to get goods from you know let's say East Asia to uh, the U.S. and from the U.S. to Europe and from Europe to Africa that you know everything is interconnected, uh, which is wonderful. But obviously, uh, the benefits are are not necessarily shared, and you know someone that is working uh, as a doctor in the U.S. might be getting you know ten. 10 times the salary of someone in, in my country and someone in my country is probably getting 10 times the salary of someone in a very, very uh, developing country. And, uh, you know, those are, you know, not issues per se because the price levels are different as well. But, uh, you know, is that something that can survive in the globalized world? I'm not sure. Uh, the same uh, applies for the services, the online services. Of course, Gmail is the same everywhere, but you cannot get the same banking uh, services everywhere. You cannot get, for example, those crazy credit cards you have in the U.S. that give you so many benefits. Like that, I've heard of that for the first time last year. And you can only get those if you're in the U.S. Um, like you know, with cashback and everything. Uh, if you're somewhere else, I can imagine you know they might not even have credit cards. They they only pay with their phone. You know, uh, we talked about. Uh, you know, in Africa, there's uh, this project I, I I forgot the name of, but uh, that has been that has been incredibly successful. Basically, paying by phone via uh, an intricate system of uh, text, and you know whatever works in the end. But um, you know, if you have a good um, banking offering in one country, in, in theory, I think it, it should be applicable for the whole world. Um, to get more competition, and you know, I, I personally am a believer in the market-based systems uh, because then the more competition would lead in better services for everyone. And one small example I can mention is in the uh, EU, we used to have you know roaming incredible roaming fees and terrible you know disparities between different countries when it comes to uh, you know phone tariffs. And even though the service of having a you know cell, a cell phone reception is or having mobile internet is essentially the same as in each country, uh, so the EU made legislation to basically unify the market. And now, not only are the roaming fees of going to another country and you know paying uh, exuberant amounts of money for just normal calls, uh, they're gone, but also the price levels have. You know, they're not the same yet, but they have converged quite a lot. So the price levels are much more similar. So I hope to see that in the future globally with banking services and other digital services as well. Merrick, are there any questions or topics that I didn't ask about that you'd like to talk about? No, I think, uh, I think uh, you've covered a lot of uh, topics and I've enjoyed talking to you. Hopefully I enjoyed talking to you too, were, <laughs> I, I hope my answers were worth something. Oh, I, I, yeah, uh, they're very insightful and concise too. Um, yeah, yeah, thank you. I, you, you, made, you made a lot of use in, of our 30-minute period. I, I wish it, it would last longer. And, and hopefully we can, we can uh, try this again on another topic uh, as the project goes on. 
Absolutely. I would, uh, as our paper works, uh, well, actually, actually I, our paperwork, but uh, what I meant to say, uh, our work on academic papers uh, progresses. I think in about half a year, we'll have some exciting developments on the initial results of our primary research on how companies in different geographies and different, different parts of the world report on their climate impact when it comes to technology deployment. And I would be happy to talk to you about that, you know, what we found out and also uh, how our overall research will be going. I look forward to it. All right, Merrick, have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks you so too. Enjoy the whole day.